And as you are resuming your seat, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Ordinarily, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we have been looking at the Ten Commandments. But it seems good to me, since we have just celebrated a baptism and we recently baptized another covenant child, and Lord willing, in the near future, we'll be baptizing two more covenant children. It seemed good to me to take a pause from the Ten Commandments series and give attention to what it means to improve our baptisms. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. Give attention to God's holy word. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that Christ is risen and that therefore preaching is not in vain. We pray that as Christ has risen, you would pour out the spirit of the resurrected Christ into our hearts that this preaching would not be vain. Working in us faith. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Westminster Larger Catechism, number 167, asks this question. How is our baptism to be improved by us? The catechism goes on to answer it. It says, especially in time of temptation or when we are present at the administration of it to others. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it, and the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby. Now, this comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism, number 167, probably a question you haven't looked at recently. It's buried sort of way in the middle of the catechism uh, that many people don't often get to. One of the things that this catechism question teaches us It teaches us that baptism is truly a sacrament. What do I mean by that? Sacraments are made powerful by faith. Sacraments do not work the way the Roman Catholics teach. Sacraments do not work by magic. When the water touches your body, then the baptism sacrament happens. The baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments operate by faith. And so what this catechism question is telling us is to exercise your faith. To exercise your faith in your baptism as you have just witnessed one, think about your own. Now the second thing we need to note about this catechism question, lest anyone think this is a reformed unique sort of reformed thing. 
This is exactly what Paul the Apostle does when he's writing to the churches. Consider some of these examples from the writings of Paul as he is exhorting the church to holiness and faith. Romans chapter 6. If we have been baptized into his death, we have been baptized into his resurrection. Colossians chapter 2, you have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands through baptism. Ephesians chapter 4, there is one Lord, one hope, one spirit, one baptism. 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, but you were washed and you were cleansed. Philippians chapter 3, we have the circumcision. All throughout Paul's letters, he encourages the church, improve your baptism. And likewise, in this passage, Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27, the exercise I want all of us to engage in this morning is to improve your baptism. Our text lays out the basics of baptism and how to improve it. In it, we have a spiritual reality and a visible sign and seal. Two very simple things in our passage. A spiritual reality and a visible sign and seal. What we're going to learn specifically in this passage is that the spiritual reality of union with Christ is sealed to believers in baptism. The spiritual reality of union with Christ is sealed to believers in baptism. There's two parts to our passage, just as there are two verses. Verse 26 is the spiritual reality. Verse 27 is the sign and seal. Verse 26, a spiritual reality. Verse 27, a sign and seal. And so we begin looking at verse 26 and the spiritual reality. Paul the Apostle begins and he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The first thing that Paul begins with in this passage as he describes this spiritual reality is one of the benefits that we receive from union with Christ. Salvation can be summarized in this way, being united to Christ and then enjoying his benefits. What Paul begins with is describing the benefit and the way that we receive that benefit. And the benefit that he describes is adoption. The benefits of Christ are various, but generally there are three or four, depending on how you divide them up. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. However, adoption is one of the benefits we receive from Christ, and it is adoption that Paul the Apostle is speaking of. He uses the language, you are all sons of God. This language of sons of God is used to indicate the relationship that you as a believer in Christ bear towards God the Father. And this is a unique benefit foreshadowed in the Old Testament 
but brought to light fully in the New Testament. As we've been going through the Gospel of John, you perhaps have noticed that throughout the Gospel of John, Christ calls God his Father. And it is only in Christ that God is revealed as a Father. Well, if God is a Father, he must have sons. And it is through adoption that he brings numerous sons into his household. This relationship is a two-way relationship. It refers to how God relates to you and how you relate to God. Westminster Confession, chapter 12, speaks about this at length. You can refer to that this afternoon. A couple of highlights that I want to point out to you. If you have been adopted into God's family and God is your father, he relates to you in certain ways. The first is that he pities you. Psalm 103.13 says that as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Now, what does it mean to pity? To pity means to sympathize. It means to have compassion upon those that are suffering. If you have been adopted into God's family, he pities you as a father pities his children. Not only does he uh, pity you, he also protects you as a father protects his home. 2 Kings uh, 6, 17 speaks about this. Don't turn there. The, the story is perhaps familiar to you. The Assyrian army has surrounded uh, Samaria, and Elisha the prophet and his servant are in the city. And the chariots of the Assyrians are surrounding the city, and the servant is getting very nervous. The Assyrians were the strongest military empire at that time. And they were known for their cruelty and wickedness. And as they're sitting in the city, Elisha's servant is getting nervous, saying to Elisha, what are we going to do? And Elisha prays and says, Lord, open his eyes. The servant's eyes are opened, and he saw an army of chariots of fire encircling the prophet and his servant. The Lord protects his children, just as a father protects his uh, household. Now, there's an important thing to understand about his pity and his protection and the rest of the benefits that come. The story of Elisha and his servant is very instructive. Often, God's protection cannot be seen with your eyes. Elisha's servant had to have his eyes opened to understand that God was protecting them. Oftentimes, that happens in our lives as well. Not only does he pity and protect, he also provides for his children. Christ taught in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 26. Why do you worry about food and clothing? Consider the birds of the air. They neither toil nor sow, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Your Father provides for you. Not only does he pity, protect, and provide, he also chastens as a father chastens his own children. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, deals with this. The Hebrews in that letter are going through a terrible time of persecution. They are suffering, and the author exhorts them not to lose heart because when we go through hard times, that is the father chastening us. He says in that passage, as many as the Lord our God receives, he chastens. All sons receive chastening, and if you are without chastening, then you are not a son. 
And so he says, do not faint when you are chastened by the Lord. Now, as the confession writes about these things, pity, protection, provision, and chastening, it says that he does all of these things as a father to his people. That's a very important aspect of this. It's often a grave mistake when people take chastening, for instance, going through hard times. It is very easy for us to think that when we go through hard times, God is chastening me. It is very easy to think that God loves all people indiscriminately in the same way. You hear people often say this. They may be going through a hard time. They haven't darkened the door of a church for years. And yet they say, God has a plan. I know it will all work out for good. God does have a plan. It will work out for good for his children, not for those who are not his children. God's pity, protection, provision, and chastening are not given to all people indiscriminately. They are only given to those who have been adopted into God's family. And so these things he does to us as a father. Now, what does that mean for you? Are you going through hard times? The Lord is in control of that. The Lord is sovereign over all things. He causes the rain to fall and the grass to grow. He causes kingdoms to rise and kingdoms to fall. He's in control of whatever is happening in your life. But if you've been adopted, he's not punishing you. He's not giving you wrath for your sins. He's chastening you as a father chastens his children. Are you scared? There was a Christian school shot up recently. I'm sure you're well aware of this. Are you worried about the economy? Things are rough right now. I'm counseling two young couples about their future marriages, and one of the things we've been talking about recently is finances. A lot of people are not getting married because the economy is rough. Do you feel like you have no friend in the situation that you're going through right now? God the Father pities. God the Father protects. God the Father provides for his people. This is the benefit that Paul begins with. He says, you are all sons of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how God the Father relates to his people as a father, protecting the household, etc. But this also refers to the way we relate to the Father. Being a son of God is not just that we enjoy his favor, but it also represents a transformation of ourselves. I do want you to turn to this passage in Romans 8. Romans 8, 15. Uh, starting in verse 14. Romans 8, 14, Paul is speaking about the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And he says, if we live according to the flesh, if we live according to our sinful desires, we will die. Because living according to the flesh is disobedience to God's law. Living according to the flesh makes you a son of wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. But he says, you are not in the flesh, 
if you are led by the Spirit of God in verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Notice what Paul the Apostle says about the way you relate to God. It is not in a spirit of slavish fear. When the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life and unites them to Christ, they are transformed from being terrified of God to loving Him as a father. That's why Paul contrasts these two spirits. You did not receive the spirit of bondage. You are not slaves if the Son has set you free. You are sons, and we receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Theologians will often talk about slavish obedience and the obedience of sons. Theologians will speak about those that obey as slaves do so out of a fear of punishment. Think about a slave and his master. The slave will do what the master says more than likely because he doesn't want to get beaten. He's afraid of the consequences. That kind of obedience is not from the heart. It is often partial, and it's only done just enough to avoid punishment. That's the obedience of a slave. On the other side, there is the obedience of sons. A son obeys the father because he loves the father. He wants to impress the father. Those of you that have raised children, you know this to be true, that your children will do something, and they'll come and they want to show it to you. Daddy, look what I did. Isn't this amazing? That's the obedience of sons, and that's how we relate to God the Father. This comes out primarily in prayer. You notice what Paul says. We receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Just an aside and and a brief application here for you. One of the ways that you improve your baptism is by praying to your father. It's not very profound. One of the ways that you improve your baptism, as the confession tells us, is to think seriously about the privileges of baptism. One of those privileges is that you have a room in the house. You have a seat at the table. You have access to the Father whenever you want to. I remember when I was under great conviction for my sins as a younger man, one of the things that really brought me to my knees was I realized that as a rebellious sinner, God did not hear my prayers. It didn't matter how much I tried to pray until I repented and believed in Christ, my prayers were going to bounce off the ceiling. That was it. But you who are in Christ, God hears your prayers and he answers them. So cry out, Abba, Father. Now, one thing we need to notice back in Galatians 3, Paul says you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. Being a son of God, adoption, is a benefit of the gospel. It is not the gospel itself. Being a son of God, this doctrine of adoption that I've unfolded very briefly, is not the object of faith. It is a benefit of the faith. 
What do I mean by this? Why is this important? Many confuse saving faith and think that to be saved, I have to believe that Jesus died for my sins or that God loves me or that I am holy. You see the problem with that. Those are all benefits of saving faith. That is not saving faith itself. Faith believes in the benefactor, not the benefit. Faith trusts in Christ, and by trusting in Christ, we then enjoy his benefits. Do not be confused, brothers and sisters. Your theology does not save you. Your God saves you in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the object of faith, not the benefits. More on that to come. He says that you are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith refers to the means, the way that we are united to Christ. We are united to Him by believing in Him. You know, um, I, I, was, uh, I was pulled over by a state trooper recently. No ticket, no fines. He just said, sir, um, did you forget your seatbelt? And I said, I, I neglected, officer, I'm sorry. And he let me go. I said, don't do it again. Well, one of the things that a seatbelt does is it saves us, doesn't it? But a seatbelt won't save you unless you're united to it. Unless you put the seatbelt on and are united to the car, quite literally... You can be in the car, you can know how the car works, you can know everything about that vehicle. But if you're not united to the vehicle, you will bounce around like a pinball when you get into a wreck. And it will be for your destruction, not for your salvation. Likewise with Christ, it is union with Christ by faith that saves us. It is putting the seatbelt on that unites us to him. And that's why Paul says, through faith in Christ. Faith is trust or reliance. It is what we lean on. Now, this is all part of the spiritual reality. This is all part of the invisible reality. Faith resides in the heart. It is not in the mind. It is not in the will. And it's not in the affections. Faith will produce a way of thinking. Faith will produce certain choices. Faith will produce certain feelings. But... It is none of those things. Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Faith is known, not directly, but by its actions. Faith is known by its fruits. You know, Christ, when he was ministering, he, he said to the disciples at one point, he said, you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I say. Notice what Christ is doing. He's looking at the fruits and saying, you profess to have faith, but your actions don't match up with that. Faith is known by its fruits. There are really two things that faith does. It receives God's word as true, and it trembles at the threatenings, it takes hope in the promises, and it receives and rests upon Christ alone for salvation. 
That's why Paul then goes on to say, you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now we are talking about the object of faith. Not the benefits, but the benefactor. Not the salvation, but the Savior. Through faith in Christ, saving faith believes uh, in Christ. Christ himself is the object of faith. You ever notice, if you look, pay attention to the apostles when they preach, what do they preach? Do they preach, believe that your sins are forgiven? That's not what they preach. Do they preach that believe you are sons of God? That's not what they preach. They preach believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Savior. Believe that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. They preach Christ, and as Paul the Apostle said, and him crucified. Ephesians chapter 1.13, Paul says this explicitly. In him you trusted There are two things we are to believe about Christ for salvation. One is who he is. Christ is God in the flesh. Remember in Matthew 16 when Christ is asking the apostles, who do men say that I am? And they give all these answers. Some say you're Jeremiah, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And then Christ says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And then Christ says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for my Father has revealed this to you, not flesh and blood. That statement of faith is the foundation stone of the church, believing that Christ is God in the flesh. The second thing we are to believe about him as God in the flesh is why he came, what he came to do. He came to be the Savior from sin. And so Paul the Apostle says, we preach Christ and him crucified. Now, when it comes to his crucifixion and his resurrection, remember what the gospel promise is. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only in who he is, but what he has done. He died and rose again. What does that mean for you and me? That means for you and me as sinners, there is nothing we can do for our salvation. There is nothing we can do to deliver ourselves from sin. There is no hope in ourselves. For the Son of God to save us, He had to die. For the Son of God to deliver us, He had to rise again. Can you do those things? Can I do those things? None of us can do those things. Think about this the next time you feel guilty for your sins. There is nothing you can do to deliver yourself from that. You can't obey enough. You can't cry enough. You can't pray enough. You can't read enough Bible. It is only through the death and resurrection of Christ that you're delivered from your sins. And so Paul says, you are sons of God through faith in Christ, his death and resurrection. This kind of faith that Paul is talking about that I'm describing to you requires one very important thing. Self-denial. You cannot be saved unless you deny yourself. All the examples in Scripture that you could look at of 
saving faith, all point to this. You remember Christ is speaking to the rich young ruler. He comes and says, Master, what thing must I do to be saved? And Christ says to him, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, well, I've done all this for my youth, so what next? And then Christ tells him, he says, there's one thing you lack. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the rich young ruler went away sad, for he had many possessions. You see, what Christ was telling him to do is to deny himself. He loved his money. His money was his God. His money was his trust. And Christ says, get rid of that God and follow me, the living and true God. The man could not deny himself. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 speaks to this reality. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. In it, the prophet writes, Thus says the Lord, uh, Jeremiah 9, 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he knows and understands me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. Notice what Jeremiah is saying. He's saying that if you're mighty, if you're wise, and if you're wealthy, don't glory in those things. Glory in the Lord. The thing we glory in, the way Jeremiah uses this word, we glorify the thing we trust in. And so what Jeremiah is saying is that the wise man, don't trust in your wisdom. Rich man, don't trust in your riches. Mighty man, don't trust in your might. But trust in the Lord. Why? Because he exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Very interesting in verses 25 and 26. Keep reading. The days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. This is very interesting because as Paul the Apostle writes about baptism in Colossians 2, he identifies circumcision with baptism. Because they symbolize the same thing. They symbolize union with Jehovah. But what that union looks like is that we no longer trust ourselves. We trust in him. And so when he says Judah is uncircumcised in heart, he means they don't trust in me. Though they have the outward sign, they don't have the spiritual reality. They are uncircumcised in heart. There are two types of hearers I need to apply this to. First are the proud. Why do you boast in yourself? Why do you boast in your knowledge? Why do you boast in your righteousness? Why do you boast in your attainments? Why do you boast in the things that you have done? There is nothing you can do to save yourself. There is nothing you can do to deliver yourself from your sins. There is no hope in you. But there is hope 
in Jehovah because he exercises loving kindness, righteousness, and justice in the earth. And then to the humble. Those who have come to see that there is no hope in themselves. Those who have come to feel the weight of their sins and like David in Psalm 25 says, Lord, do not remember the sins of my youth, but think of me in your loving kindness. You don't see any hope in yourself. That's good. There is no hope in yourself. Hope in the Lord. Trust in Christ. And through faith, you will be a son of God. Well, we have this inward spiritual reality, union with Christ by faith, and enjoying the benefit of adoption. Paul then goes on to speak about the outward sign and seal of this inner spiritual reality in verse 27. He goes on in verse 27 and says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Notice first off the way he uses the sacrament. Verse 27 begins with the word for. He's giving a reason. He's encouraging them to strengthen their faith. It's like this. If you're like me, your heart is fickle. Your faith is sometimes weak and your faith is sometimes strong. Your faith is uh, sometimes on the mountaintop and other times it's in the valley of the shadow of death. Our own hearts, our own thoughts, and our own feelings are very unreliable. That's why the Lord gives us an outward sign and seal. It is something objective that we can look at and draw strength and encouragement from. He says, you are all sons of God by faith in Christ for All those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is a washing of water in the name of the triune God as Christ instituted it and as you've just witnessed in in the midst. The symbol of baptism, what baptism symbolizes is our helplessness and God's pity upon sinners. A couple of passages we could look at. I think Ezekiel 16 is probably the best one. Ezekiel 16, verses 1 through 6. Now it is proper that we baptize infants, and it is proper that infants or adults, when they come to baptism, normally are dressed in their... Sunday best. I knew a family one time that uh, when they would bring their daughters for baptism, they had a special binky. It was pearl white, beautiful, church binky. So it's appropriate that when we come to church, we're in our Sunday best. But you need to recognize that the, the sign of baptism comes from something that is not so pretty. It is taken from something that Uh, If you've experienced it, you know that when a child is born, they are covered in all the facts of life. And that one of the first things that's done for that child is the mother takes that child up in its arms and washes it, 
cleanses it from all the facts of life. That's the image that Ezekiel uses. Look at what Ezekiel says. Starting in verse 4. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out in the open field. You yourself were loathed on the day that you were born. Brothers and sisters, what he's describing is an abortion. Spiritually, when you were born, you were aborted. You were born and left exposed in the field, and when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. This is what baptism symbolizes, that we in Adam are like an exposed child left to die in the field, and Jehovah comes, takes us up, and washes us with water and brings us into his family. That's what baptism symbolizes. He says further in Galatians 3.27, we are baptized into Christ. We're baptized into Christ. This is the sign of baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of an invisible reality. To be baptized into something means to be united to that thing. Paul speaks in several places about uh, Israel was baptized through the Red Sea into Moses. They were united to Moses through that baptism. Paul speaks in Romans 6, uh, verse 3, if we are united to Christ in his death, we are united to him in his resurrection. Uh, and likewise, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says we have all been baptized into one body. We are united to one body, the body of Christ. Now we need to uh, do a little bit of polemics here. Polemics simply means proving the truth in comparison to an error. I'm well aware that the area that we live in is very baptistic. And there, there is an error when it comes to baptism among our Baptist friends. Many think of baptism as an expression of your personal faith. That's how many people think about baptism, that the purpose is for me to give expression to what I have believed. Well, there's a problem with this. This emphasizes the individual's response to the gospel. That's the heart of Baptist theology. Baptism represents what you do to receive the gospel. The logic there is that if you believe, then baptism as an expression of faith. Again, this is an error, and Paul's language in verse 27 helps us see the error. We are baptized into Christ. On the Baptist thinking, it makes baptism a sign and seal of what we have done. I have expressed faith, now I'm baptized. 
That's the same as saying you are baptized into yourself. But Paul says we are baptized into Christ. The symbol of baptism is a sign and seal not of what we have done. It's a sign and seal of what God has done in Christ to save us. Baby, facts of life, cleansed with the water of baptism. That's what God does. That's not what I do. It is a sign and seal to us, as I said, not of what we have done, but what God has done. Therefore, this is the Reformed Presbyterian way of thinking about this. Therefore, those who are baptized are understood to already be in Christ. The reason we baptized is because by the judgment of charity, we judge that these individuals already belong to Christ. They are already members of the church. A profession of faith, somebody comes and says, I now believe. The elders say, you're a part of the church. Let's baptize you. Family comes, we've had a baby. He's a member of the church. Let's baptize him. Baptism belongs to those who are already in Christ as far as we can judge. Just, just an aside here. I know this is getting long, but we'll wrap, it, we'll wrap this up quickly. Somebody that professes faith can be wrong as well. Many people ask at this point, well, what if the child doesn't grow up to believe? That may happen. We trust and pray that won't happen, but it could. Somebody that comes and professes Christ can also fall away. There is no guarantee that someone is a Christian just because they can give expression to faith any more so than a child who can't express their faith belongs to Christ. Both are based on the promise. Now, Paul the Apostle continues um, speaking about being put, uh, baptized into Christ. Notice what he says at the end of verse 27. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now Paul describes the seal of baptism. It is a sign of our union with Christ, and it is also a seal of that same union. He uses the image of clothing. I just want you to think, you know, we're all in our, in our Easter Sunday best this morning. And uh, I imagine that you did not put your suit on and then take a shower. You took a shower, and then you put your clothes on. You knew that you were going to church, so you got ready and got clean, and then you put on a nice suit to seal that cleanliness in you. Likewise, what Paul says here, clean clothes go on a clean body. The garment of Christ goes on those who have been washed. It belongs to those who are already clean. Now, why is this? Men are to dress like men. Presidents are to dress like presidents. Women are to dress like women. The clothing reflects the person underneath, not vice versa. Clothes don't make the man. The man makes the clothes. And so in baptism, the clothing of Christ reflects the reality of the person who is baptized. Now, I said we would conclude this quickly. Your patience is going to be rewarded. How do we use this? How do we improve our baptism? 
we'll look at the passage that Paul has put before us. This is exactly what he's doing with the Galatians. He's saying, you've got all these heresies in your church. Some of you are falling away from the faith. Some of you are being uh, persecuted, probably. Some of you are being told you're not good enough to be a member of God's church. But Paul says, you are already sons of God through faith in Christ. For as many as have, put on, uh, have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The first use of baptism is to recognize that you are a son of God. You have been adopted if you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to your father. Go to him with your guilt. Go to him with your fears. Go to him with your concerns. Go to your father. His arms are wide open. You are already sons of God. You might say, Pastor, but I'm wicked. So am I. All of God's children are wicked except Christ. That's why he died. So you could go to him. You are already a son of God. And, and the reason for this is that when you were baptized, you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means God does not see you as you. God does not look at you as you. He looks at you as Jesus. He regards you the same way that he regards Christ. You remember Christ's baptism? The Father opened heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So also God the Father says to all of those who believe in Christ, you are his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Therefore, improve your baptism by a serious, thankful consideration of its benefits and its privileges. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sacrament of baptism that is a sign and seal upon our faith. We pray, Lord, you would help us to improve it and to think upon its benefits this day and always, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.